Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Hi and good afternoon to those who are joining here on Zoom and those who are joining here on Facebook Live. Someone else is joining. I also want to say hello. I've been reminded to say hello to anyone who's listening to this on a podcast because you might be joining it, not be joining it live, but you might be listening to it on Temple Beth Am's podcast. So it's great to have you with us. This is session three of an indeterminate number of sessions where we're going to be diving deep into Rav Cook's uh, Hakdama, his own introduction to his Shabbat Haaretz, his tre- treatise on the laws of Shemitah and just the laws of living in the land of Israel and ecology. Uh, the first session we did a huge intro into Rav Cook's life and his background and what, why the kind of rabbi and leader he was and the time in which he lived and and the particular historical moment in which he lived made his writing about Shemitah particularly significant and interesting. And then at the end of that session, we started to look at his the first paragraph of his Hakdama, and we did look at a few more last time. And we're going to move farther into the text today and also some look at look at some other sources from outside uh, this particular source that shed light on what he's teaching. Um, and again, welcome if you're joining us live on Zoom or on Facebook or on the uh, Pethon podcast. Uh, podcast. I'm also putting a new link to the source sheet in the um, in the chat because I create a new. I'm working off of one Safari text sheet, but every time I import it to Google Docs, it's a different actual sheet. So hold on one second. Uh, if you're going to want to be opening it up, I will also share it, share the screen. But in case um, in case you want to actually have it open on your computer in a different window, that is fine as well. So let me put it in the chat, and you can get onto it as soon as you want. Um, there it is. Uh, before we jump into today's text, uh, those of you who are in the Betham community directly know that this is a very somber and sorrowful day, and it's impossible to do anything today without mentioning it a little bit because it's hovering over the consciousness of everyone connected to our community. We've had a tragic loss in our community, the death of a 16-year-old uh member of our community who's been active and beloved and we're in the the first real hours of processing it and we're all still going through our work days and teaching our classes and having our meetings and uh, while we're also meeting the family's needs but it's 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 foremost in my mind so if I guess this is my way of saying if I seem a little bit either um, low or distracted uh, that's why um, and also to dedicate all of the good work that we're doing and all of the study to the soul of a beautiful young child, teenager, um, who's no longer with us and whose family will be crushed forever and ever. Um, All of the banal pronouncements are still true, which is that it's uh, on a day like this, when you're adjacent to such a tragedy, it's once again a day to say Mode Ani and mean it. I went Davin this morning and I, Thank God for bringing my soul back into my life, my breath into back to my body, and for the ability to live this day. It's an unpromised blessing, and to be as gentle and as caring with all the people in your life as you can, because they need it probably more than you realize, and we don't know what tomorrow will bring. So we're going to study, because that's what this is for, and this is not a grief session, but I couldn't gather members of the Bethlehem community or members of the Bethlehem community adjacent and not uh, mention Esther Blum of blessed memory, 
Um, and I, for those who are listening who are more involved, I thank you in advance for the ways in which you'll bring comfort to this uh, aggrieved family. Okay, let me share the screen. Um, okay, uh, the screen is shared hopefully. Um, and I just have to just set up one more thing in the background here. One second. Sorry, I get another document available to me. Um, where we got to last time, if you're looking at the screen, we had gotten through um, paragraph number five of Shabbat Aretz, and we had looked at some verses in the book of Dvarim that are underpinning some of Rav Cook's meta-analysis and meta-introduction as to why the laws of our relationship with the land are so significant. And he ran, went back into this uh, verse, Ki mi goi Elohim kuvim elav. Oh, what a great nation who has such a God close to that nation. Um, elav, that God is with us every time we call. And in the previous verse, and I, I did it out of order because he used it out of order, um, referring to rather jingoistically, uh, right? Just only a nation as wise and as enlightened as ours, right? So it's a dip into the Deuteronomic voice that we are a special people, special either by cosmic um, destiny or because we have agreed to be in relationship with this God, but, you know, and, and the kernel of the notion of an am skula treasured, uh, an am that is chosen, a notion that has confounded many a modern and not even non-modern Jew, what to do with Asher Bacharban Mikol Hamim. And if you've ever been in uh, a, a reconstructionist synagogue or a reform synagogue, they've changed some of that liturgy because they don't want to sit with the idea of our having been chosen in a traditional community uh, such as Beth Am, we, we we say those words even if we bristle at them a bit and wonder what they mean. Rav Cook had no problem understanding us to be um, wise in that we agreed to be chosen, but to use that wisdom in a way that will enhance the world. It's not it's not a wa- a wisdom that leads to smugness and self satisfaction, but to suggest that we were tapped for a particular set of duties that would only become clear to us because of our relationship with, with, with God, God. Okay. And then we looked at another text of his from his, uh, collect, um, his connection collection called Orot. And I wanted to just um, remind us of something that he said, because it was two weeks ago, because it impacts the next place we're going. Because the next place we're going is how he connects these universal ideas to the very specific set of mitzvot related to the land of Israel, and that is Shemitah. So if you look in the second paragraph of this Orot text, again, this is not from the text that we're basically studying. In order to fulfill this aspiration, it's particularly necessary that this Tzibor, this public, will have a political, social, and national governing country or state. Uh, he used the word Medina there, right? Medina means a state, a political entity that exists at the highest level of human culture. And Am Chacham Benavon Hagoy Hagadol, right? That verse from Deuteronomy that we have to self-organize as not just a collection of individuals of each gotten the good word, right? It's not just right the the one of the things that distinguishes us from Christianity, and this is neither good nor bad. It just is, is that we our self-identity is way beyond a, a group of individuals with um, who've heard the religious call. 
right? We self-identify as being a nation in Christianity to make an extremely complex thing rather simple. It, it's kind of good enough for there to be um, believers around the globe who've received the glad tidings of, of, of what Jesus brought to the world and the religious transformation that happens in their souls individually is enough for that the core understanding about why Christianity should exist in the world, not for us, right? It's not good enough for the Jewish people for me and Michael and Larry and Diane and Bonnie, just looking at the people that I'm seeing right here to each have heard Moses's call, right? What um, Rav Cook is saying is that we have to self-organize into an Am, into a nation, into a Medina who can harness the Chokhmah, the wisdom and the, our being Navon, our being enlightened, so that we can do something with it, not just because we've in, we're individually enlightened, but so that our nation can enlighten the world. So now back into the text, and the godly idea rules there, right? Ideally, and nothing is ideal, right? The state of Israel is not the state to which I'm extremely committed, is not one that always lives up to the idea that we're an Am Chacham Navon, where godly rule is governing all the policies. Knesset is not governed by the by Devarim but hopefully it's infused and informed by it and gives life to the people and the land with the light of its, that should be no apostrophe, its life. In order to make known that not only wise, exceptional individuals, pious and holy nizirim, nazir, um, ascetics, can live in the light of the godly idea, meaning the reason why we accept this yoke of being an Am Chacham B'nabon and to set, and to organize as an Am is to show the world that it's actually not just us who might be in our own self-understanding wise and exceptional because we've agreed to be chosen. It's not just we who can and should live under this godly ideal, rather that whole nations, the rest of humanity can as well with all the elements of existence, etc. This is a compelling notion, not an easy notion, right? It's the particularism of Jewish wisdom applied to universal ideas, um, and the implications of that being a driving idea within the Jewish consciousness, right? As we discussed before, would we publicize this, right? Would we be comfortable sharing with our Gentile friends that this is what our Judaism is all about? Is for us to, is it, or is it too akin to the kind of messianic proselytization that makes us uncomfortable when evangelicals express it? it it's kind of mini evangel, mini benign evangelism built into traditional Judaism, most evangelicals consider their evangelism to be benign because they're spreading the good word to everyone. We've got some of it in there, right? It certainly animates Chabad. I want to get to Chabad um, in a little bit as well. Uh, or is this something just for internal consumption? Not that we're embarrassed about it, but it's to drive the Jewish push to get as deep as possible into the particulars of Jewish practice, including how we take care of the land, so that we might have something to say about how the world self-organizes, right? So I, I wanted that to be kind of there before we jump forward into the, the, the part of the text that we haven't studied yet. Let me pause and see if there are uh, questions or reactions to that. Um, I can't see everyone's face. So um, either unmute and start talking or raise your digital hand uh, if you want to contribute at any point. Once. Okay. Twice. All right. So now we're on to a new paragraph. Um, the seventh paragraph of his Haktama. And I'm going to do this the way I did before. I'm going to kind of read chunks at a time and, and pause and, and add my commentary and then pause to see if there are any questions. And a reminder, particularly if, this is, if you're joining in the middle, 
if you haven't come to the first two, uh, any Danny K fans out there? My father brought us up on Danny K records and there was one Danny K shtick where it was, this is the movie that, this is the movie that ends in the middle for the sake of the people who came in, in the middle. So in case, um, you came in in the middle, a reminder that, uh, Rav Cook's Hebrew is exquisite and inscrutable. Um, and people who, uh, have studied Hebrew their entire lives still can go through a paragraph and, and, and not be a hundred percent sure, even 80% sure that they've gotten it. But we get, we certainly get a good, a, a good sense of it. Okay. Teva haneshama haklalit shall knesset Israel who Elohu, can't pronounce it in such a, he invents this word, Elohiyuta. Okay. The nature of the neshama, the soul spirit, right? We're going to go back. Gonna, I put that word in bold because I wanted to remind myself to linger on a second. Haklalit, this gener- general, overarching, comprehensive spirit, shall knesset Israel of the entity which Rav Cook borrowing from Kabbalah, refers to as Knesset Yisrael. We're going to go into that a little bit in a second. Who, what is that essential general nature of the spirit? It's Elohiyutia. It's divinity. It's divine nature. It's it's connection to the concept of Elohim. I really do think that Rav Cook invented the way Elohim as a plural, grammatical plural noun representing a singular um, divine notion was declined, if you think of the way declensions happen in grammar, in this way, that it was turned into like a adjectival noun, like a a divinity, and then adding a possessive pronoun, an Elohiyutia. Okay, so what's going on in this one sentence? Because we can't really go farther into the paragraph until we unpack this sentence. First of all, nishama. In modern Jew speak, we often use nishama and nefesh as interchangeable, right? It's the part of, of, of our experience that is beyond the tangible, beyond the sinews and the, and the ligaments and the bones and the blood, what makes us be who we are, right? You could take a, uh, a, neuro, a neurophysiological um, um, perspective on it and try to understand like what's actually happening in between the synapses, a spiritual religious understanding of it is that that's the neshama. And in Hebrew, neshama, of course, is related to neshima breath, because that goes back to the opening lines of Reshit, where God blew breath into the uh, as yet unanimated human being. So it's it's the breathing in our tradition. And by the way, in many traditions, go to any meditative tradition and going back to cent- the central notion of breathing is what connects us to the parts of us that are uh, not non-tangible. And we often use nefesh too, even though in the Bible, nefesh actually meant flesh. We use nefesh oftentimes in, in modern Jew speak to mean soul. But it has very, very um, specific connotations in the Kabbalah. In Kabbalah, there is a, uh, a three-step ladder, um, each representing different aspects of the inanimate a part of a, of of an every individual human's existence and all of human existence, and the ascending rungs are nefesh, ruach, and neshama. So, without spending a whole hour breaking down those uh, concepts, just know that when when uh, Rav Cook is using neshama, he's referring to the the highest form, the most pristine form, the form closest to the godliness of a human's 
uh, intangible spirit. And if you think about the, the hierarchy of Kabbalah, right, there's, there's, there are the Sfirot, which we're going to get, going to get into in a second. And at the bottom of those Sfirot, those Sfirot are both emanations, um, of God's godliness. They're also character traits that we are meant to bring out in ourselves. And at the bottom of that column is a place where God descends and we ascend and we, and we, and we meet each other there. Okay. Um, Nishama is the part of us that has the greatest chance of having any kind of union or understanding of God's emanations. So when he says, Teva Nishama Israel, he's saying, what is the, what is the nature of the highest spiritual manifestation of the collective Jewish spirit? It's the fact that we bring divinity into our realities, right? Now that's breaking down Nishama. Let's break down Knesset Israel because it's a great phrase. Right? Knesset is from the root kanas, kaf nun sin, which means to enter. Modern Hebrew, lihi kanes, ani nichnas, I entered. Um, bei Knesset, right? We often, you know, the Hebrew word for a synagogue is a bei Knesset, which is actually an interesting language choice because um, it's actually quite Mordechai Kaplanian, even though it's much earlier than Kaplan. Kaplan said that the synagogue should be the center of everything, right? The synagogue is not just where you pray and study. It's the center of Jewish civilization. That's why synagogues built inspired by the Kaplanian model, including Forest Hills Jewish Center in, in New York, doesn't just have a synagogue and a Beit Midrash and a social hall, but a pool, right? It should basically be a JCC. A Beit Knesset is a house of, of entering. You should enter as much as you want, whereas we normally would think of, you know, synagogue in the ritual sense as a Beit Tfilah, which is not just the name of a minion at Betham, but a house of prayer or, um, uh, or Beit Midrash, a place of study. Knesset Yisrael then is the gathering together, maybe the entering, but I think gathering makes sense here, of Israel. But it has a technical term. First of all, an interesting tidbit, which may just be coincidence. It probably is, but it's interesting anyway. Anyone know the neighborhood of Nachlaot in Jerusalem? Right? It's the, across Rehov Yafo from the Shuk. Okay, from Machana Yehuda. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's funky. It's a combination of Haredim and, um, and hipsters uh, and underground, you know, guitar bars and very, very from and oftentimes very, very poor uh, residents living also in places that are being quickly gentrified where, where $2 million will not get you much of an apartment, right? Um, it's also... Due, if you think about where Jaffa Road is, Rehov Yafo, it's due west of the neighborhood around Ben Yehuda Street, where, where, where near where Ben Yehuda Street is, on the south side, if I'm doing, the, doing this correctly, of that street, is kind of modern Jerusalem now and then. And on the north side of the street is Mea Sha'arim, which is where the ultra-religious Jews lived. And Rav Cook famously lived uh, near or on Rehov Yafo, and we mentioned this in the first session where he had an entrance to his home from the south side where the New Jerusalem was being built and the north side where the Haredim were being built because he wanted to be a chief rabbi who was accessible to all of them. The next neighborhood up, or west actually, is, um, is Nachlaot. And within Nachlaot, there was a neighborhood founded around when Rav Cook was there called Knesset Yisrael, um, a neighborhood called by this name. Um, it was where uh, originally poor Haredi families, in particular Torah scholars who had no, no way of generating an income, were housed in the waves of Aliyah in the 1910s, 20s. Uh, so he had clearly a relationship with the idea because it's a Kabbalistic idea. He also lived next door to the young neighborhood of Knesset Israel. I thought that was an interesting tidbit. 
Um, but what is Knesset Israel? In order to understand what Knesset Israel is, we can look at many texts, but I want to look at the first text of the Zohar. So I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to scroll back up. I want to scroll down. Okay. Um, because it, it, it doesn't say enough about what the word Knesset Israel means or what he meant by it to simply say the gathering of Israel. Let's read the Zohar, the opening line, and then we'll see if we can understand what he was mean, meant by it. Zohar is um, the, you know, the, the book of splendor it's often described as, is the, the initial um, Kabbalistic text uh, whose date and author, um, whose date of origin author is, will, will, will never be known for sure, uh, but it's the foundation of all mystical um, Kabbalistic understandings in the Jewish tradition. And this is, these are literally the first words of the Zohar. Written in very challenging Aramaic, even if one's Aramaic is strong enough to understand the Talmud um, or the Aramaic sections of the Talmud or the Midrash, it's a oh, it's a different beast to understand Zoharic uh, Aramaic, and I claim really very little expertise in it. Um, one day, perhaps I'll be able to go deeper into it, but it's it, you, you, the, it, it's really true that you need to master all of the Jewish tradition before to make any sense of the Kabbalah or the Zohar in a systemic way. Rabbi Chizkia Patach. Oh, and it's almost certain that the Zohar is written with a certain kind of historical retrospect in the sense that it was probably not composed in the time of the Talmud, but it's referencing statements of Talmudic era rabbis as if it's in real time. So Rabbi Chizkia is one of the rabbis of the Talmud, but it's almost certainly the case that this is not composed around when Rabbi Chizkia lived or that he's actually being quoted. He's probably being like it's being imputed to him or some statement that he said in earlier Midrashic collections are now being resurrected in the Zohar, which is probably a couple hundred years later, at least when it's coming together. Rabbi Chizkiah Patach, Rabbi Chizkiah opened up. We talked about that in one of the last two classes that to begin a Midrashic text with Patach is, is formulaic. It, um, it's called a Patichta, an opening. And what it means is I'm going to quote from another part of the Bible, and then use that quote to make the point that I want to make here, even if the point I'm making here is not specifically related to that section of the Bible. So Rabbi Chizkiah opened by quoting from Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, chapter two, Keshoshana ben hachochim, just like the rose or lily is amongst the thorns. Beautiful song, if you know what it's often sung at weddings. Keshoshana ben hachochim, kein rayati babanot. Like the th- lily amongst the thorns, so is my beloved amongst all the women. And then it's reversed back. So what you have in Shir Hashirim, the, the male figure and the female figure, whether that's actually a male and a female human or an allegory between God and the Jewish people, rhapsodizing about their beloved as being the one lily amongst the thorns, okay? So quoting that, those two lines, like a lily amongst the thorns, man Shoshana, who is this Shoshana? Who is the Song of Songs referring to? Da, this, Knesset Israel. That's Knesset Israel. What does Knesset Israel mean? We don't know yet, but Knesset Israel, the, 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 in the, the gathering of, the, of, of Israel. Um, begin to eat Shoshana, be eat Shoshana. This is really interesting. It's almost like like a, a Yiddishism. If you can imagine, like a Yiddishism made more understandable in voice in ancient Aramaic. Like you know, there's a rose and there's a rose, right? That's kind of how you understand this line. So there there are plenty of of roses, or plenty of lilies. But the but the Zohar says in in the vein of the eat Shoshana, there's a rose. 
the each Shoshana. And then there's some, not all roses are created uh, equal. I keep going back between rose and, and lily. Uh, it's probably lily, but Shoshana is sometimes understood as rose, although the modern Hebrew word for rose is vered. Ma Shoshana di'ihi bein hachochim itba sumak v'chiver. Just as the actual rose, the flower, which is between amongst the thorns, has within it uh, red and white. So if you can imagine like a, uh, a brilliant lily or rose that has red and white amongst the brownier, more brown thorns. Uf, uf is the, uh, is like af in Hebrew. It's the Kabbalistic Aramaic version of af. Af knesset Israel itba din verachame. Just like that, so does Knesset Israel, this gathering of the Jewish people, has within her, the her is significant. Knesset Israel is a feminine representation of the Jewish people, has within her din, justice, judgment, verachami, and mercy. Now, it's unclear if what's being, no matter how it's translated on the left, this is not my translation. It's, it's a translation that's on Safaria. I played with it a bit, but uh, it's not my initial translation. Um, every translation is a, is a decision. It's not clear if what's being said here is that also the Jewish people have as qualities within it, deen, judgment, and rachmi, mercy, or are living under the realm, the divine realm of judgment or mercy. But we're, 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 we've got the beautiful red and white, that might be the mercy, and the thorny judgment, right? Just as a, uh, a lily has, I've never counted, perhaps has uh, 13 petals. So does the Knesset uh, Israel find itself surrounded uh, by a 13. What, are, what 13 are we, are we surrounded by? Adonai, Adonai, Rachum, Bechanun, Erech, Apayim, Rapesed, Ve'emet. So it, it's, it's an interesting analysis because if you're, if you're following the, the comparison, we, Knesset Israel, uh, is the rose, and we're surrounded by the thorns, but the thorns are God's attributes, right? It, it's, it's really unclear what image is being, we're being asked to consider. Is it that we're the thing that is being protected by, by God, and it's the 13 attributes are, that are protecting us because thorns do protect the rose? Is it also that we're being threatened by God or threatened because thorns are prickly? It, it's it's an it's a imprecise, well, it may have been precise in the minds of the writers, but as a reader, it's not entirely clear what we're supposed to be thinking of when we imagine us as Knesset Israel, but it's introducing the Zohar begins its discursus by saying, we Jewish people are Knesset Israel, the feminine representation of the entirety of the Jewish people who are in a relationship with God of Din and Rachamim and are surrounded by these attributes. And these attributes are supposed to keep us alive and well. Um, and we are supposed to be imagining ourselves in that picture. Okay. So if you go back to... Um, this first sentence of chapters of chapter seven, the very highest spiritual general nature of that part of the Jewish people that sees itself as a feminine collective living protected by and in relationship with God. What makes us so different than any collection of human beings? It's our Elohiyut. 
It's the fact that we have a certain divinity coursing through us or that we are relating to. Okay, let me pause here because that was very dense and see if there are comments or, or questions because we're, again, only one line into this paragraph. Anyone? Going once? A, a, quick, a quick question. Yeah. That, that last phrase is, is mainly Aramaic, right? In, back in the Zohar? Yeah, the Ma'uf. Yes. And, and the ending is, is also Aramaic. Is, is this a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic? Is the Zohar a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic? It's mostly Aramaic, except for quotations from Hebrew texts and a little bit of Hebrew. It's, it's, it's more percentage-wise Aramaic than the Talmud is. The Talmud, since the Talmud, um, the rabbis of the Talmud, the Mishnah is Hebrew, except for very, very few words. The Talmud, even the Babylonian Talmud, is a collection of material of Babylonian rabbis and Israel rabbis. And when the Babylonian rabbis were speaking or writing, they were mostly speaking in Aramaic. And when the Palestinian Israel-based rabbis in, were, 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 were speaking among, uh, in the Talmud, they were mostly speaking in Hebrew, but lab dafka, not always the case. And so when you're reading not the quotations of Mish- Mishnaic material, but the conversations in the Talmud about it, it's half Hebrew, half Aramaic, and the stories are half Hebrew, half Aramaic. In the Zohar, it's a much higher percentage of Aramaic. Yeah. Um, if you looked at, uh, I, I jumped over something. The in the translation of the Zohar, you had in the the translation on Safari, and I don't know who made the translation. Threw in here an interesting thing uh, after the ro- after the phrase because there is a rose and there is a rose. Um, puts in, an, in, in, in the English a transliteration of two Aramaic terms, nukva and zeir anpin. What does that mean? Nukva, nikeva, feminine. Zeir anpin, the small face. This is really hard to explain. It's really hard to understand. It's not like I understand it so well and it's hard to explain it. It's hard to understand, let alone explain it. But, but we, Knesset Israel is the nukva, the feminine, it's b- both... It's both a feminine emanation of the Jewish people, but it's also the feminine side of reality who is intending to do union, ecstatic, celestial, intimate union with God, right? But the only part of God that we have access to is Zeir Anpin, the lower face. We don't even have possible access to the higher face, to the ultimate supernal face, right? So in a, in a very, you know, um, um, what's the word? Um, you know, if you wanted to use a moderate heteronormative understanding of things, there's a feminine and a masculine in the world. The masculine, even though God does have a feminine representation, that's the Shekhinah, the primary union creating the zygote of reality is God's masculine Zeir Anpin and our feminine Nukva represented by Knesset Yisrael. And when we do mitzvot and when we are connected to the Jewish tradition, and when we're studying, that unification takes happen, takes place. And some of you might even be aware of the liturgy that is not as common in our traditional conservative uh, sidur, although maybe it should be, but it, it, it's lurking. Look at this. Um, when some of you, where, where might you uh, hit this? You might hit this if you read the meditation before putting on the talus or fill in the morning, that you're putting on the talus and fill in, and by doing so, you're affecting a union uh, in, in the heavens. Uh, you might hit this at uh, Svirat HaOmer. There was a new tune that we introduced at Bethan this year to Svirat HaOmer written by um, 
I think it was either um, Joseph Goldman or maybe Deborah Sexman's that I remember. And uh, it begins this way. And this part isn't written here because it's from the Omer. Um, what, what are we singing? We say that. In the name of, for the sake of, a yichud. In other words, yichud from a Jewish wedding, right? The, the private time after the chuppah where the bride and groom are theoretically alone for the first time, although we know that's not clearly what's happening in the modern uh, way. Uh, a togetherness. What kind of togetherness? Between Kudsha Brichu, the Holy Blessed One, Ushchinte, and his Shechina. Who is his Shechina? His Shechina is two things. His Shechina is both the feminine aspect of God that we help mate with the masculine aspect of God in the Kabbalistic idea when we're doing mitzvot, but we are also Shechina. Because Shekhinah is the lower, lowest rung of the, of the, of the, um, of the, of the Sfirot, where we can, in our, in our highest selves, we can become Shekhinah. And so we are not only effecting the mating, we are mated with. Okay. And every mitzvah is an opportunity to effect that union. Bidechilu urechimu, with trembling and with rachmim and with a sense of mercy. Liyachadashem yudke bevavke. We are ourselves trying to create a union between Yudke, what's Yudke? Yudhe, and Vavke, Vavhe, the two pairs of letters in the Tetragrammaton, Biyehuda Shlim, in a perfect union, and therefore creating Yudhe, Vavhe. We create Yudhe, Vavhe every time we do mitzvot in the proper way. B'Shem Kol Yisrael, and we're doing this in the name of all of Israel. We're not just doing it for our own spiritual ascent, but so that all of Knesset Israel can ascend. He, this is just the le- language of, of a standard introduction if you're davening from a siddur that includes it. Here we're coming to pray. We're doing a mitzvah. We're, we're coming to daven shacharit. That Abraham established, according to the Midrash. Or this would not be all that appear in the same paragraph. I just uh, interpolated them. Mincha, Or we're coming to daven mincha. That Isaac uh, established according to the Midrash, or Aravit, Shatikein Yaakov, Avinu, Alava Shalom, or that Jacob, our father, um, may peace be upon him, established. In Kola Mitzvot HaKvulotba, including all of the individual mitzvot within it, Litakein et Shorsha, the Makom Elyon, to kind of firmly establish the root of this mitzvah down here, the Makom Elyon, in some supernal location. Lasot Nachat Ruach, Liotzreinu, to bring a certain ease of spirit to the one who formed us, the lasot ritzon borenu, and to do the will of, of our creator. This is the end of one of the Psalms of Sukkot Zimra in Shabbat. May the pleasantness of God be upon us. May the work of our hands, uh, um, may, may God establish the work of our hands upon us. And may the work of our hands sustain us. Okay, this is a version of this appears in front of, 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 of each of the, Tfilot that you daven um, in some sidurim, and many Hasidim say it in front of every mitzvah. It could be a little bit cumbersome, but it allows you to remind yourself that you're doing something to effect a supernal union. That's what is referred to here as nukva and zeir anpin. What we do creates the union between the feminine and the masculine. Okay, so now getting back up here, that's it only took 37 minutes to get to the first line of paragraph seven. Michael? 
you know, Rabbi, what what, what seems so, uh, uh, you know, it, the what is so emphasized here in all of this is that we are doing these thing uh, things personally, but in the in sort of the name of community. And I find that so uh, overarching in everything we've been talking about today. Wonderful. By the way, I just posted again the link because I realized that some people joined the class after I put it. So you can watch, you can look at the text on, on your screen that I'm sharing, or you can open up a different window. It's in there. Um, yes. And, and Michael, your comment, which you may have even intended, is happening on more than one level. So the individual Hebrew act, Jewish act, Israelite act, expressing the highest form of an, our neshama and our Elohut to bring together the kuch, the, the nukva and the zeir anpin is on behalf of all of Israel so that we can actually become the Knesset Israel that God wants us to be. And that is done on behalf of all, the world entire. Because if we stop just halfway, woohoo, I counted the Omer so that Israel can be the Knesset Israel. Rav Cook would say, you're, you're halfway to the end. But 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 you're only in the 50-yard line. Because if you're doing that just so the Knesset Israel can rise and meet God, then you are harnessing Jewish particularism, but just for a Jewish particularist end, and that's not enough. And the reason why he's connecting this to, to the land is because the land is a universal thing, even though it's only the land of Israel that obligates us in the, in the laws of Shemitah. It's also to bring a certain ecstatic peace to the world entire. Right, which is not something that, frankly, a lot of religious Jews are thinking about when they're doing religious acts. Right, most people aren't, and I, I'm not. I'm not even critiquing this. I'm just naming it. Most people are not walking into daily meeting in the morning saying, "I'm putting on my tefillin, so that I can reach a spiritual high, so that my spiritual high can help the Jews become Knesset Israel." Maybe that, but so that Knesset Israel can help bring a universal peace to the world. It's just not part of our consciousness. But maybe. It ought to have been, certainly from a Kabbalistic perspective. Uh, is your hand up again or still, Michael? Still. Okay. Um, let's push forward. Any other comments, questions? Okay. So um, now that we've established what that first line of this paragraph might mean, let's see what he says with it. Lo bechirata garmala et yitrona elohi. It is not that... Um, it, it is not through choice, bachar, that causes this yitaron, this um, advantage, Elohi, this divine advantage. Meaning it's not anything that we um, have done um, that that brings us into this potential relationship with a godly idea. Lo mitzad ma'aseha prati'im. On a grand level, it's not anything that I've done in my life that it's allowed me to access this system, my individual choices, meaning even though my next individual choice to do something Jewish is contributing to the system, that's very much a Kabbalistic idea, I didn't earn it because I chose to live a certain way. Not because of my righteousness, it's not because I was, I'm a good dude that I get to impact the world by putting on tefillin, the yosher levava, or the straightness of my heart, it's not for any of these reasons that Knesset Israel arrives or has arrived at this level. This is some interesting stuff he's about to say, which we can have a mixed reaction to. 
it's a characteristic of our geza. Geza is a loaded word in Hebrew because geza in modern Hebrew means race. To be gizani is to be racist. He's not using it here, I don't think. Like Judaism as a race, the way we would, we, way that we use the word race in, uh, in modern English, but some kind of essential spiritual quality that's embedded maybe in the blood of a Jew and maybe in the spirit of anyone who chooses Judaism because he was certainly open to conversion. Tchunat Giza, the characteristic of its, how is it translated here? Um, a core quality. It's a, it's quite it's a little bit denuded from from its from the the force of tchunat giza, but we can go with it. Hagufani v'haruchani, both physical and spiritual. Astala et chela is what gives. Think, remember all these hers. The la is a feminine ending. Chela is a feminine ending because the her being referred to as Knesset Israel. It's some essential core quality, both physical and spiritual, that gives her her chayil, her strength, like Eshet chayil or a chayal and man Hebrew soldier, viet uza be'elohim, and her strength with God, in God, of God. What he meant with the preposition but in be'elohim is anyone's choice, anyone's guess. Asher lo bibchira lakhaoto. It's not with choice that we, Knesset Israel, acquired it, unless the choice was to say yes at Mount Sinai. There's nothing that any individual Jew or the, the entirety of the Jewish people could do in our brokenness that would lose us from having the opportunity to be in this relationship. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's um, unconditional love. It's the, you know, what, what we promised our children that there's nothing that they could do. There's something they could do that could, might get them kicked out of our house, but there's nothing that they could do that could get us get them kicked out of our hearts, ever. One second, Rebecca. Even though there's nothing that we did in our individual or collective choices that earned this, know that there's anything in our individual or collective choices that could ruin it, it is the case, however, indeed, that, that, we, that our choices from this point forward within the system, it's an interesting phrase, a mavo can be an introduction. It could also be like a pathway, like a um, an antechamber. It, 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 our choices has has a significant impact on the journey we're about to take. The whole skula tivit, with any of our of the natural fate that awaits us, biota tova tuchal lefanka ula adna. In that, if we make good choices, tova moving forward, that good choice could. Be mifanek ota. What's mifanek? Mifanek is to be is to make more comfortable, make more delicious, more delighted. Right? Manahibu to be mifunak is to like like um, like luxury. Right? That we have an opportunity to make yet more delectable this lot, this this fate. Leadna. That's a verb created from the word that means Garden of Eden to Edenize it to make it yet more paradise. Lahotzia. To bring it, it being the opportunity we have to be in this relationship with God, la poal into um, into reality as opposed to just potential, beofen shalem bechashut in a um, in a way that is full and is significant. Let me just finish the sentence, Rebecca. Vechein biota ra'a, and also the case, even though you didn't choose to be in the system, now that you are in the system, 
And if there's nothing you could do to that that ruins your ability to be in the game itself, it is the case that if your choices are ra'ah, are evil, are wrong, are not spiritual, ushfala and low and, and emanating from your base urges rather than something higher, to hal lahachshich etamaor. That's a beautiful way of saying it. You can darken this light. You can't extinguish it. You can bring the you can bring the burner way down low. You've got this this natural treasure by being in this system. You, for yourself and also for Knesset Israel, can lower the flame to diminish, to make ugly, to ruin its splendor. Zohar here may or may not be an intentional connection from Rav Cook to the Zohar. It also just means splendor, but it's interesting that he's um, invoking Kabbalistic ideas and he uses a noun, Zohar. Letamtem et halev, to stupefy the heart, right? to make the heart dumb, like a, like a tum-tum. Leval yachush et ha-osher, so that the heart can no longer experience ha-osher, the wealth, ha-ruchani, the spiritual wealth, ha-tzafun, that is marked, betoch chaye ha-neshama, that is marked for the life of your soul. To pause right here, and just to contrast the two things he's saying, you did nothing as an individual or as a nation to earn it. There's nothing you can do as an individual or as a nation to ruin it forever. But within it, you do have the power to determine whether this Zohar is bright for you and for the nation and the world, or is dark and minimal and incohate. So there is no power to your deeds because the system will always keep going, and endless power to your deeds because you're determining the intensity of the brightness of your Elohiyut, of your godliness. Rebecca? I'd like to say that I forgot what I was going to say, but I didn't, <laughs> despite it being such a long sentence. I just wanted to bring up that the word Gizak could also refer to the trunk of a tree or the stem, and mm. so the um, sort of the, the part that connects between, um, I guess, the roots on the top of the tree. I, I don't know if that works here, but that might be something that you, you know, you, um, but it's there because um, you kind of breathe it in or you, you, um, you grow from it um, naturally. It's, you, you know, a tree doesn't, doesn't do anything to sustain the trunk. The trunk is sustaining the tree. I think that works great. And I think it might have been what informed the translation here to translate it as core as opposed to something having to do with race and essentialism. Um, now, what he, Rev. Cook meant by it, I don't know. But but it certainly gives us the opportunity to read it one of two ways, something more essential or not necessarily like essentialist, but central, but, but, but core, right? The tchunat giza, the, 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 the characteristic of its of its core of its of its foundation, both physical and spiritual, is what gives it its power and its and its divine connection. Sure, good. Thank you for that reminder. Anything else on this so far? Okay, we'll finish this paragraph, and then finally, because I'm sure you're all waiting, we'll we'll see um, how he's going to connect this to uh, Shemitah. Because again, this is his hakdama to his treatise on Shemitah, but. He's first dealing in very lofty terms about the basic uh, destiny of the Jewish people. But however much 
the stupefying of your heart can happen or the darkening of your world can happen as a result of your non-spiritual choices, they are not able, that stupefying of the heart, the hachshachat hamaor and the darkening of the light, they are not able lehimashech leolam. You can never, you, you, you can't be bad enough, long enough for it to be perpetual. There's always going to be the potential to return to a way of living that is within this divine system. Haskula hativit, this natural treasure, this natural, nat- natural, national inner treasure. Bituchahi, it is secure. Bekiuma in its existence. Uvehit oreruta, and in its perpetual ability to wake itself up. Lehit rare litchia to life. Right, it, it it may slumber, it may rip Van Winkle, but it can always be woken up again. Um, there's an interesting association here that I'm not sure I'm not I think he's making, but I'm making to uh, kashrut. Uh, many of you know of the notion of when you're talking about treif in kosher or meat and milk or milk and meat, that there's a concept of batel b'shishim, that if the measure that's being mixed in the good stuff into the bad stuff or the bad stuff into the good stuff is less than one sixtieth it is nullified, right? So, you know, to a, a semi-classic example is, is that if you're cooking a meat stew and um, a measure of, of milk falls into it and it's liquid and liquid, as long as the amount of meat stew is more than 60 times the volume of the milk, then it disappears into that meat. And even though you know you are eating later on at dinner a foodstuff that has milk and meat, according to the kashrut, you're not. It gets nullified. Um, so that happens in milk and meat and treif and kosher, and it happens chametz in non uh, in kosher pesach food, but only before pesach. What do I mean by that? If I'm cooking a kosher pesach soup, and an amount of chametz, and I'm cooking it before pesach, and an amount of chametz falls in, and if the amount of chametz is less than one sixtieth, it's nullified, and I can eat that on pesach. Okay. When it comes to treif and milk and meat. Once it's nullified, it's always nullified. What do I mean by that? Let's say I made the mistake again, the milk into the fleshic pot. But this time, the individual amount that went in is still less than one sixtieth. But if I added the milk to the original milk that fell in, but was already nullified, it would get it over the one sixtieth threshold. That math makes sense. When it comes to milk and meat or milk, meat and milk or trafe and kosher, it's okay. You could actually theoretically make a mistake over and over and over again. If it's actually a mistake rather than something engineered, you can't intentionally mevatel, right? You can't say so you can't put a very, very, very piece of cheese on a very, very big hamburger and bite into it. But if you theoretically made the mistake over and over again, according to halacha's internal math, you could eventually be consuming a stew that's half milk and half meat. As long as each time the individual amount itself is less than 160th, because once it's nullified, it's always nullified. Not true for chametz. If you have less than one sixtieth of chametz fall into kosher pesach food, and then the mistake happens again, what the halacha says about chametz is chozer v'neor. It returns and awakens itself, and it adds to the volume that's going in now. And if that if that sum is more than one sixtieth, the whole thing is rendered on kosher pesach. Interestingly, what Rav Cook is saying about the Jewish Hebrew sole possibility of living within this system where every act can effect a yichud, a union between 
the feminine and the masculine aspects of God and of the world, no matter how many times it's nullified by our sinfulness, by our waywardness, by centuries of Hebrew Israelite kings uh, bringing idolatry into the temple, by our being blinded by 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 values other than other than Jewish values, it's choser v'neor. It can always return and be reawakened, which is a very optimistic way of understanding a very pessimistic reality of humanity, right? And thank God for that, right? If like like if we imp- imported that from the religious realm into the relational realm like what do we, what it would mean do we do we, do we actually would we say that in our relationships would we say there's nothing that the other person can do such that there's no return from it right i would say that it changes based on the relationship um certainly there are there are violations that cannot be recovered from in the spiritual realm according to rav cook there are none larry diane or larry i don't know who i don't know if Diane's there diane no diane's cooking <laughs> Make sure um, it's less than one sixtieth. Well, as you know, we don't have any meat in this house anymore. I so, um, I love the word "uvehit oruta." Yes, which I guess is like it says arousal. It's an awakening, her awakening. Um, I'm just trying. To, I'm looking at the last the last sentence here. Skula ativit. It's like a natural treasure, right? Translates the inner soul treasure. I would say, DV would be like a natural treasure, maybe. Um, and I'm, I'm only—it's very optimistic, but it's hard for me to accept his optimism that if we don't work hard um, at nurturing this um, this treasure, that it will always be there and will, of its own volition be aroused and arouse us to renewal to uh the tahia. You don't you're saying you don't share his optimism. I want to share his optimism, but I'm thinking about it, maybe I'm thinking maybe I'm applying to the wrong thing. I'm thinking about Jews and Jewish communities that are lost to to to, to some form of identification and practice, whether it be religious or otherwise. Um I'd like to think that there's a spark there, but I don't think that it actually works very well. And I have, I have a lot, a lot to say in response to that, um, because what you what, because I have, because I have a lot to say. Um, you and I and everyone in this in this class are religious, observant, identified, educated Jews on some level, who are living even our spiritual lives in a pragmatic world. I'm not a prophet. I, I am infused by prophecy. I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inspired by it, but I know, and I'm okay with it. I'm not, I'm not living a prophet's life. I don't have that much of my consciousness in the heavens. I'm living a, I'm, I'm living a, a pragmatic, tangible life, um, informed by the highest values of our tradition. Rav Cook was more angelic, and Rav Cook might have said to us, "Okay, you can't see it. I can." You're saying that there's a pragmatic argument that once a family or a generation is lost, that we can't bring them back. And I'm telling you that what I'm hearing from the tradition is that on a celestial level, that's bollocks. And that the celestial doors are always open. And there are certain parts of Jewish history which actually bear out the more angelic view of things, right? I mean, the 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 the, the return of African Ethiopian Jewry 
to Knesset Israel. They were doing it all the time, but they rejoined Knesset Israel. There was nothing that the world could do ultimately to, to divorce them from Knesset Israel, right? Or uh, on a smaller scale, right? The, the Jews who lived under um, Soviet communist uh, repression for centuries and somehow, not all of them, but found a way back both to Medina Israel and to Knesset Israel. I will never forget a conversation I had with um, a Chabad teacher Rebbe in Kiev or in the outskirts of Kiev when I was there visiting in, um, with a federation mission in 2012 or 2013. Um, I have in some ways great, great, great conflictual feelings about some of the ways in which Chabad operates in American Jewish communities. And Almost not begrudgingly, nothing but admiration for what they do out there in the world where conservative rabbis aren't sending emissaries to go meet the needs of the Jews in this place or that. And this was a school operated on the outskirts of Kiev, filled with kids. I'm just going to say it. They didn't look Jewish. And the reason they didn't look Jewish is because they were the offspring of two or three generations of just natural, functional diminution of Judaism through intermarriage. They looked much more Ukrainian than Jewish. All of them had at least one Jewish grandparent or great-grandparent. Chabad was the only place in town and was established a Jewish school for these kids and was willing to educate them even before the, the, the children who were not children by Jewish law were, were halakhically returned to Judaism. And we're speaking to the Chabad, I don't know if he was the principal or whatever he was, you know, the kind of guy who grew up in Israel, um, you know, didn't speak anything, didn't speak the language and was sent there by the system, by the Rebbe, you know, and I, you know, we say, if you know, for how long are you going to be here until Mashiach comes, right? You know, my, my, my contract is 10 years. Their contract is forever. Um, I'll take a forever contract, by the way, if anyone's offering it, just, I'm, just if anyone on the personnel committee is listening, I'll, I'll, I'll consider it, um, you know, to learn Russian or learn Ukrainian. Uh, and he described to me his mission or the mission of the institution. He thought of the tradition he represented as passing an extremely powerful magnet over the landscape, so powerful that if there was any shard of metal, that it was even a tiny bit magnetic, where less powerful magnets wouldn't attach it, this magnet would, and the shard would come up and attach itself to the magnet and have a chance of being reunited, and now I'm adding, reunited with Knesset Israel. It's miraculous. Right? It's not my Judaism, right? I, do I wish that that group was also learning Masorti Judaism? Sure, but we're not the ones out there doing the hard work. And it's an example of the part, the, the part and the thrust of Jewish evangelism, which is inspiring, which basically lives by this idea that there's nothing that any czar or any demographic or any passage of time can do to fully extinguish the idea that once there was a connection to Knesset Israel and Knesset Israel's relationship to Zayir Anpin, to God's small face, there's nothing that can extinguish it forever. In, in my own small way, I hope I'm doing a version of that on the corner of La Cienega Cien- and Olympic, mostly for people who already are in the game. And there are some people who are dedicating their Jewish lives to the, the, the heat over root in places that are less likely. Uh, because it's, we're just out of time, I want to just focus on there are two entirely different ways of understanding that last line. And I tra- the way I choose to translate it is different than the way Rabbi Julian Sinclair translated it. And I have no idea which one of us is right uh, with no false humility. The way he translated it is that 
just read it. Sooner or later, this inner soul treasure can be relied upon to arouse the nation to renewal. What I was translating is that sooner or later, I didn't put the sooner or later, that, that the inner, that inner um, instinct or inner treasure can itself be reawakened, not to be doing the reawakening of us, but can be reawakened within us. It's a, it's a subtlety, but the language can, can go in both directions. Okay. That brings us to the end of paragraph seven. And when we meet next time in two weeks, we'll be down to what well, we're going to read a little bit of what Rabbi Julian Sinclair wrote somewhere else. And then we're going to start, we're going to skip paragraph eight and go to paragraphs nine and 10, which is actually finally going to get us to Shemitah. So in the fourth class of the Shemitah class, we'll talk about Shemitah. Um, wonderful to spend this hour with you. Uh, I, I needed it. I needed this window in the midst of a very dark day in our community. And um, again, if you're listening on Zoom or on Facebook or on the podcast, wonderful to be exploring this material with you and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.